And I'm Oliver. Welcome back to Orange. And today we have a very special guest, uh, the Associate Professor at the University of Melbourne, expert in immunology, and just so happens to be a Chief Scientific Officer at CSL. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me. Lovely to have you on the podcast. Ben and I have been looking forward to this, you know, for quite some time. We've been trying to operate and get people of your caliber onto the podcast just to see how they ended up in the positions that they were in. So thank you for coming on the podcast. We'll get into kind of the first question. So Andrew, for us as well, tell us a little bit about yourself in general. Like, what do you do? Those types of things. Well, so I'm... As you said, I'm the uh, Chief Scientific Officer at CSL um, and I, I guess alongside of that role, I'm also what's called the Senior Vice President of Research. So that means that the glo- CSL has a global research group of about three or 400 people spread across Australia, um, Switzerland, Germany and the US. And so I look after um, that large group of people and, and the research that they're doing. Um, and then from a Chief Scientific Officer perspective, it's more about... More about the direction and the integrity and the value of the work we're, we're doing. So it's two roles combined in CSL. I've been doing that for about 16, 16 years now So and, and loved it the whole time. And before that, I was in a small biotech company for about eight years. And before that, I had an academic career at the University of Melbourne for about eight years. So sort of academic career, small biotech, and then a bigger company for the last you know 15 or 16 years. Wow. Yeah, it's an interesting background and we'll get into your sort of past a little bit yeah. more later on and like how you got into this position. Mm-hmm. But maybe, like, I guess I'm just curious about what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, what do you rock up at work? I mean, what does what uh, a, yeah, a CSO of Australia's biggest biotech do? Well, I, like, <laughs> I, th- I think most of the scientists that work for me, they wonder the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, now's, your, now's your chance. <laughs> well, it's, and sometimes it just feels like you go to meetings the whole day, you know, um, but, but uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting job. You know, I, I love science. I've always loved science. The connection between science and medicine, I think, is a, is a fantastic thing to focus your interests on. So, so most of my day is, you know, thinking about, um, you know, what's happening in CSL research, what's happening in CSL more broadly, um, you know, what's happening out there in the greater world in terms of, patients and unmet medical need and how we can contribute to that. So that's sort of a, a macro perspective. On the micro side of things, look, there's always something happening, you know, whether it's a project that's gone off the rails, whether it's a great result, yeah, whether one of your staff members wants to leave and go somewhere else, you know, um, there's lots of things like that as well. So, you know, there's, the, there's always those smaller picture things that keep you interested on a day-to-day basis. I, I, my office is right embedded within the lab, so I see all the scientists every day and I can corner them and talk to them about their projects or they can corner me and tell me about their projects. Mm. Um, but then alongside of that, there's sort of the, the, the bigger picture stuff of CSL as a global company and, and how we're you know, delivering for our, the patients that we work for, our shareholders, and how we compete with everybody else out there as well. Fantastic. I mean, as a, yeah, operating within the kind of lab area of CSL, how many projects are you juggling at the moment? So, so it's funny you should ask because um, the size of the portfolio and how you allocate your resources across projects is always a big challenge and, and we've just been having a really close look at that. We have a, 
a brilliant person that works for me. She's head of what we call our portfolio management uh, process. And so, so um, I would say at the moment we have anywhere between 25 and 30 um, in, you know, main projects that, that are in what we call a StageGate 1 portfolio. Um, they're projects that are on their way, hopefully at some stage, to the clinic, into patients. Um, but behind that, we have another 20 to 30 projects that are mainly about collaborations with, with people in the medical research institutes, within the universities, and they're really early stage research that may or may not you know, lead to something that we would like to pursue on a more formal basis. So I, I guess overall about you know, 40 or so projects that are in a, the preclinical stage, um, but then quite a few of the, the, the people in my team also work in or on projects that have progressed into the clinic as well. And there, there's another portfolio of clinical programs, but, but mainly those say you know, 40 to 50 preclinical projects. I read somewhere on a certain website or article that was published about you that you always start off with sort of the unmet clinical need and then you work backwards from there. Yeah, yeah. Given that, like, you've obviously overseen a lot of different projects, what's been your favourite one so far in the past? Um, that's a, a good question. The, the, the most recent one always tends to rise to the top. So, you know, we're... You know, CSL works in rare diseases and, and we've been working on new treatments for a group of patients who, what's, who have what's called hereditary angioedema. So they have a muta mutation in, in a gene that, that means ultimately they have uncontrolled vascular leakage and swelling at random moments in their life. So, and that can be fatal depending on how the attack um, occurs, whether it occurs, say, in your stomach or your larynx or your arm or your, your face. Um, and those, 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 we know what the genetic lesion is. We know what the pathway that's activated is. Um, and those patients have been treated pretty poorly for the last forty to fifty years. That's sort of the history of people with rare disease. They, they're usually, you know, not many therapies available to them. Um, but the way they were being treated was in a way that's called on demand. So you would wait for them to have an attack and then you would treat them with the missing factor that you'd purified from someone else's blood. So these people had pretty miserable lives, you know, just waiting to have an attack, ending up in hospital and getting a treatment for it. But just recently we've developed a, a new therapy where they can have a self-administered uh, injection once a month and they won't have any attacks at all for the most part. So, so that at the moment is just in the, the process of um, approval going through the, the regulatory authorities in Europe and the US and, and here in Australia. So um, hopefully that'll translate into a, a whole new way of life for them where they're, you know, they're much healthier and can lead full and normal lives. Mm. You know, Andrew, I'm curious, like coming from an academic background in research, uh, you more translational and kind of in the biotech space, the speed of development between the two obviously is very different. If you can talk on that point in terms of how it's different from academia. Well, so, so, I mean, I, 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 you know, to your point that you made just before, Ben, um, the, the two types of research can generally start from different perspectives. So academic research starts from a, a problem that someone wants to learn more about and, and it can, can end up being pretty reductionist in the end. You know, they just delve further and further and further in the problem and and ultimately end up coming up with lots of interesting information. And, and sometimes that translates into therapies for people with disease, and sometimes it doesn't, but 
but that doesn't really matter because that wasn't really the point to start with. Um, whereas what and that so there's you know the time frame on that you know is, is not really limited other than by the fact that you continue to make exciting discoveries and you continue to justify your funding um, with with um, biotech or, or, or company based research you actually as you said you start with, with a patient you know who you know is not treated well and then you work your, your way backwards into the science and having got a handle on the science, you think about, well, how could we develop a new therapy based on our understanding of that? And you go forward from there. And look, it, it'd be great to say that process takes a few years, but, um, you know, the, the project I just talked to you about, um, we first got involved in that project uh, probably in about maybe 2004, 2005. So it's, it's almost 20 years later of a whole lot of work with a few sidetracks here and there, thinking about the wrong, getting it wrong and then having to get it right. 20 years and finally you're getting a medicine. So, um, you know, but in the end you, you sort of get there. You know what the objective is um, and, and you get there as quickly as you can. So it doesn't always take that long. Um, and, and I guess, you know, care of COVID and care of the, the rate of development of those RNA vaccines in COVID, there's sort of the expectation that things will get done faster in the future than, than they have in the past. But, you know, I suspect that won't be the case because in the end, when you're developing new drugs, the, the first thing you have to do is make sure they're going to be safe for everybody, that, you know, not only do they cure the disease, they, they kill the person that's getting them as well. So. Yeah, I think Oliver and I are both of the persuasion that the most impact that you can have on society, you know, from a medical perspective is actually being involved in a biotech company because fundamentally like every treatment that we have has to be manufactured somewhere and without it, medicine is left defenseless. So I think there's a trend that I've noticed in a lot of different companies where they almost have this product that serves some very obvious purpose. It, it sort of fits an existing market need and then they leverage that to fund research and development for projects that sort of align more with their mission statement. So you've got like Amazon that might do, might, might sort of sell Amazon web services uh, and make a lot of profit off that and then use that profit to fund their more sort of commercial retail side and, and expand retail. Uh, you've also got Tesla making those really expensive cars and then using it to sort of transition the world to sustainable energy. Where would you say, like, I have a feeling that CSL is, is kind of aligned on that a little bit. Could you talk a little bit on, yeah. on that? Yeah, look, I, I think so. The, the, the trick, of course, is always getting the balance right. If you're not achieving the really successful products, then you don't have the resources to fund the ones that um, are more difficult. But a, a, as an example, um, you know, one, one of the, the patient groups that we focus a lot on are those patients with primary immune deficiency. And, and um, really, they can't make antibodies themselves, so they're susceptible to infections. And they get, they get treated with immunoglobulins or antibodies that we purify from other patients. Um, and, and that is a huge market for CSL. It's CSL's biggest product. It's billions of dollars a year. Um, yet we know for subgroups of those patients where uh, we understand exactly what, where the genetic lesion is, what, what, where the mutation is, that we could develop a gene therapy to, to treat that patient. Um, and rather than being on therapy for the rest of their life, they would essentially be cured. We don't yet understand what the commercial model is for that. You know, the, that, that particular uh, subset of patients with PID 
probably a frequency of about one in 500,000 people have that disease. Um, so, so we're working on developing a gene therapy, a potential cure for them, but we're not sure yet of what that commercial model looks like, whether we can, you know, um, make a, have a profitable product. But we know it's the right thing to do for those patients, uh, and we know that gene therapies are going to be more frequently used in the future. So we've just taken the decision to commit to it and, and to see where we get to. And, and, of course, that's what you said. We're using the, the resources that we have available care of the successful products to fund that type of research. But it's always, it's always a balance. So if, if we, we have a big portfolio of projects, you can do the type of project we just mentioned as long as you're doing the other ones to sort of maintain that balance as well. Mm, absolutely. So I suppose... From, from my perspective, I see a lot of scientific researchers in academia transitioning into the biotech space or entrepreneurial space. Yeah. Is that something that CSL supports? Is that something that you think is a good kind of move forward? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, CS, I think one of the keys to CSL's continued success is really ensuring and encouraging the growth of the small company sector you know, here in Australia. So, um, you, you know, we, we, we know that, um, you know, if, if you're going to be competitive, you have to encourage an environment of innovation, not just within your own company, but w where you're established and where you're based. So we support a lot of um, research in an academic environment and we do our best to support small companies as well. And we do that in a number of ways. So, uh, you know, we're co-investors in venture funds, so we, we put our own dollars into venture funds and they invest in small companies. But um, j just recently we, we've you know, uh, made an investment in um, an incubator space with Melbourne University and the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. So probably if you went back four or five years, um, there were people in my team and, and others in this precinct sort of asking that question, what is it that's holding the precinct back in terms of you know, more entrepreneurship, you know, more translation uh, and better outcomes from all of the academic research that occurs here. And um, one of the things that, you know, comes to mind straight away is unlike a lot of other big similar centres, you know, overseas in Europe or the US, we don't really have or we didn't have any dedicated wet lab incubator space. And that just happened to coincide with us putting up a new building at the top of Elizabeth Street there, you know, it's 18 floors, um, and we hadn't decided yet what was going to go in all, in all of the floors and, and we came up with the idea, well, why don't we just turn two of those floors into a biotech incubator for small startup companies? Uh, and, you know, Melbourne Uni and WeHi were thinking along the same lines um, and so we all got together, we established a partnership. Uh, we got $25 million from Breakthrough Victoria, the yeah, state government, right. so good on them for helping out. And we fitted out an incubator in, 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 in that building that can hold up to, I don't know, 20, 30 small companies. And it's just recently opened and the first tenants are just coming in, you know, as we speak. So that, that's something that we've done, you know, really directly, you know, created a physical environment for those companies to come into and work. And so my feeling, I, I, look, I hope it's successful. I don't think, I don't think we've left any stone unturned in order to try and make it successful. Um, so we just, you know, fingers crossed, five years from now, um, 
I hope it's sort of doubled in size rather than sort of shrinking and going away. But, you know, it's there now and, um, I, you know, I'm really hopeful that it'll make a big contribution to the sector. Brilliant. I mean, it's it's right in the precinct as well. Yeah. So yeah. You, you'll attract a lot of, you know, very intelligent individuals yeah. to the area. And if you say it, it looks beautiful as well. So there's yeah. like a whole floor of offices <laughs> yeah. and co-working space and, yeah. and then the labs are just gorgeous, you know, fitted out beautifully. They, they look nice now because there's no scientists in them to mess them up, but. You know, once you, once you get a bunch of companies in there and scientists, it'll start looking messy and like people actually doing stuff. It'll start looking like a lab. It'll start looking like a lab. Now <laughs> it just it. looks like a like a beautiful space with white benches and clean yeah. walls. But yeah, I tell you what, that new building, the 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 big red CSL oh, yeah, sign yeah, emanates yeah, emanates it. through my bedroom window. <laughs> it's incredible. Well, my, my son just lives down in Barclay Street, yeah. um, just near Seven Seats down there. He tells yeah. me when he looks out his bedroom window, he can see the CSL yeah. sign on top of it. It almost <laughs> reflects off all the glass in all the other buildings. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure we thought about that when we were putting that. I thought it was there. purposeful. It just turns out that that's sort of a high point in the area, yeah. mm. and that's the the biggest building there, so you can sort of see it from all over the place. <laughs> I think we should organise a tour of that study and that would be incredible. film it and everything. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great building. You know, there's there's no, it's all open plan offices. It's it's as I said, it's about uh, seventeen or eighteen floors, but it's eight floors of labs. There's like manufacturing facilities in there. There's research facilities, and then there's you know all of the corporate offices and and salespeople in there as well. So it's a real mix of everybody that's involved in a pharma company. And the shared working spaces are unbelievable. You know, if you want to think of ways to get people back into the office after all the working from home during COVID, just put up a building like that that has an environment that people are going to want to work in. It's a bit like that, actually. Yeah. Exactly. I think there's probably a lot of uh, aspiring biotech founders listening and so that entrepreneurship culture is growing in Australia. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention is that like CSL started off as like a Commonwealth-backed a plasma fractionation yeah. company uh, and then you know you transitioned and expanded to all of these different industries a list of projects i, I can't even scroll through this they're, they're so long if you were starting a biotech company like today and you wanted to go through the the sort of juma bio incubator what what would you start from like would you start from uh producing and manufacturing something that's already needed or would you start at some clinical problem and work backwards what would be your advice? Um, yeah, look, I, I think having the clinical problem in mind and an innovative solution is is the, is the place to start. And um, you can you you can be along that path either a, a tiny bit or you can be along it a fair way and and really know where you're heading. But the st the start is having the great idea um, and and demonstrating that you're someone that can follow through through on it. And then thinking about and putting in place the resources to do it, and, and that's sort of the challenge. Understanding, yeah, I've got a great idea, um, but what are all the steps that I have to go through to realise that? You know, where am I going to get the money? Where am I going to get the lab space? Where am I going to get the people? But you know, I think you know that's one of the things where there's a, there is a lot of opportunity in Australia is to to make sure all of our really smart people in, in our universities and institutes have a, have a much better understanding of that process you know that it's not something that you know they have to go to inordinate lengths to to understand and to discover it's part of undergraduate university courses it's just something that people coming through courses know um, you know that that in entrepreneurship is embedded in our in our you know education system rather than 
you know, something that's really hard to discover and learn about. And it's still, it's sort of a bit like that at the moment still, you know, where, where people, I think, are having great ideas, but then they're just at a loss as to really the next steps you need to take to get those moving forward. What, what have been some of the most interesting companies that have sort of moved into the Juma buying space? So, look, honestly, um, only the, one, there's, I think, four or five companies that have signed up. There's been 20 or 30 companies that have moved through, uh, that have been through it, uh, and I think there's just one or two that have moved in. And um, I think I, the operators of the incubator um, haven't announced that yet, so I might be doing them as yeah. a service okay. if I had Understand. announced it for them about who's moved in and who yeah. hasn't. Yeah. I so, suppose <laughs> another question then might be, what are the what are the prerequisites of actually signing up? Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. And, um, you know, really uh, when, when you put in place a model incubator like that, you really spend a lot of time setting up the criteria for the, the type of tenants you want. So down there, there's a big focus on really early stage small companies. So there's, there's you know, a lot of parameters that are set up to avoid having too many later stage companies uh, having service providers in there and, and not companies that are actually developing new opportunities. So, um, you know, there's set, set numbers of companies and space that's allocated to companies of certain sizes. And certainly the majority of space at this stage is put aside for, you know, small companies with maybe one, two, three people um, who are just starting on their journey. Not so much companies that have got 20 or 30 people and they're in phase two and phase three clinical sure. programs. So, and so what, what we're really saying is, we're asking, is, is it a, you know, do we, do we agree that it's a good idea? It's not completely crazy. Um, and, and can you demonstrate that, um, you know, your company has at least got some level of sustainability? You've got some funding, um, you've secured some backing. Other people believe in your idea um, and, you know, um, you know, we can bring you into the, the environment uh, w- without taking a lot of risk ourselves. Mm, very interesting. So would you say a lot of the projects that are going through there are stemming out of academia? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Most yeah. of them, I would say. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, um, there is a lot of, uh, I guess, venture money around at the moment for for um, for startups and, and really good ideas. So, you know, I would say if, if you're out there in one of the universities or institutes at the moment, you've got a really good idea, you know, um, the, the, the dollars are there to support that and the environment's there, um, you know. And I think the universities, institutes are are all making an effort to, to promote that entrepreneurship. So yeah, it's a good time. Brilliant. I think one of the things that we're interested about in you generally is sort of how you got into the space. Obviously, you've, you've reached this almost like pinnacle of success for a scientist uh, in Australia. And um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, you were a high school student, went to Oberon High School. The only other thing I see is like PhD at UniMelb. What happened in between? Like, how did you go from you know, a kid at a high school to a scientist and then to someone in biotech? Well, it's, it's a good question. And, and like, strangely enough, the high school down the road from Oberon High School was Belmont High School. And I came, I was in touch with the, um, the chief scientific officer at CSIRO um, not that long ago. And it turns out she went to Belmont High School, just down the road from where I went to high school. So, yeah, it's, it's a long way from Oberon High School to to a PhD and then being a chief scientist at CSL. Um, 
but I had a really strong interest in in science. Um, but beyond that, strong interest in science had really no clue. I mean, you know, who, who, like I'd, I've done an undergraduate degree, I might as well do honours because research looks interesting. I've done honours, I might as well do a PhD. Mm. That looks pretty interesting. And and then when I I went into you know when I finished my PhD, I did a postdoc for for a variety of reasons. I did my postdoc here at the university as well, and I I did that for a few years. And you know it was it was really it was immunology focused, uh, but and there was a lot of I guess applied research. It was at the veterinary school, and and the person I was working there for had a really strong entrepreneurship uh, going on, and he he was really focused on translating his work into veterinary medicine. So we were working on basic biology that impacts either human disease or veterinary disease, and because it was in that faculty. There was a, lot, a strong interest in translating into, um, um, you know, animal health, but but animal health wasn't really, you know, something that I wanted to spend a lot of time doing. I'd seen, you know, the value of you know really high quality research and how it could benefit society, and that was back in, you know, sort of ninety four, ninety five, and that was when the first wave of biotech was taking off in Australia. So the first biotech companies were just being set up. And the, 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 there were jobs available for scientists, which there hadn't been before. And one of the leading companies at that time um, was a company called Amrad, uh, one of the you know the main forerunners of the biotech sector here. And and they, they, it was interesting. They had a, their research group at that time um, was being run uh, by a guy who was also working at WeHi at the time, and whose name was Doug Hilton. Oh, yeah. um, Interesting. So, so I met Doug then, and Doug said, "Why don't you come and work at Amrad and and take over my role?" So I worked for him for a little while, and then he went back to Wehi full time, and I took over the research position. There you go. In Amrad, and I, I've worked with Doug really ever since. But um, you know, that that was how I got into the biotech sector, and it was, at, at that point, um, that was sort of the ninety six. Depending on where you got your funding, it wasn't so hard to get funding. You know, I mean now. You guys would know the success rate for, for grants. Grant funding, it's, yeah, yeah. It's quite low these days. It's really, really tough. But back then it was like in the 30, 30 wow. so like in the 30%. So yeah. it was much better, but but starting to drop off. And, um, you know, I, I was just interested in, in trying something different. So so I went to a biotech company um, and, you know, I just sort of worked my way up through there. And, um, you know, for that that. Small companies that are listed on the ASX, there's there's lots of things that can go wrong. Um, and AMRAD, I guess, was a bit before its time. The The business model was still difficult to understand for investors and analysts. Um, and so it, it, it ran into a little bit of trouble and eventually ended up splitting in two with, with one part, you know, pursuing biological medicines. And that's the part that I was involved in. So I... I went with that part of the company and we, we established a new company. We changed the name of that company um, to Zenith Therapeutics. Um, uh, and I ended up as CEO of that company, um, which 18 months later got acquired by CSL. So, you know, and that was that was sort of, at the time I can remember thinking, oh no, I really love this small company and we're getting acquired by these guys. This, this could be a really bad thing, but... A year and a half later, 2008, 2009, was the global financial crisis. Like, small biotechs really, really struggled. Um, and, and we were fortunate enough to be, I guess, somewhat cocooned from that within the CSL environment. And so, 
you know, 15 years later, CSL, I'm in the position I'm in now and have loved it for the whole time. What were you like as a, as a kid? Like, I remember when I was uh, in, in year three, I would sort of catch insects and <laughs> I would put them all in a, in a, a sort of a multi-purpose uh, Pringles container and I'd trap them all in there and... Uh, fight to the death. <laughs> there, there was like this sort of fascination of little things and figuring out how things work. Was there like a similar sort of experience you had in your childhood? I, I, look, you know, maybe I had one of those bug catcher toys that the kids all have these days. But you know, when, so I, I'm involved in a few things that say sound now like you know the you know the um, dif- different approaches to taking science into primary schools and secondary schools. And, and now there's a big effort to expose kids at really young ages to, to science and to experiments and to biology. But back when, I, you know, in the 1970s when I was going through, there, there was none of that really. So whatever your own, your interests were whatever you made, you know, yourself. And so, yeah, little bits of science and things along the way. But, you know, I, I, I grew up in Geelong, which was, you know, 15 minutes from Torquay and Ballasbeck. So I grew up surfing and fishing and, Looking mainly spending my time looking for other things to do other than schoolwork, basically. But but in the end, it's like you know you get to like year ten or eleven, and you, you think, well, I better I better start thinking about what I'm going to do. So I thought, well, science seems interesting. But it, you know, I'm, you know, my my kids have been through you know VC in in the last decade or so, and and uh, unlike now where the whole process seems to start th- three years out, and you you work your ass off for like three years just to get to the end of year 12, you know, back in 1978 or 79, you could do nothing right up until the last six months of year 12. Just cram everything. Just cram everything into six months, get some really good marks and go to university. And the rest of the time you just spend enjoying yourself really. So, and then, and then I, so I, it's fine. So I've I've got an identical twin brother. So, so when you grow up, you've like, you've got this ready-made friend there who is identical to you. So has all the same interests. But so we both moved to Melbourne to go to university, except he ended up doing economics and business, and I ended up doing science and, and biology. So, you know, so we, we, you always had someone there to compete with and push you along, and, you know, the move to university was made easier, care of all that sort of stuff as well. Mm. Yeah, I suppose a lot, of, a lot of scientists at the moment, you know, they're like wanting to go into biotech and such. Uh, it's, I mean, you mentioned before as well, like it, it kind of goes back to how competitive it is to get grants and such. Was that ever a worry for you going into science? Did you ever think to yourself, oh, am I getting into a very competitive kind of landscape, job security-wise? How did yeah. you feel about that? I could honestly say there wasn't, it wasn't such a thing when I, was, when I was having these thoughts back in sort of finishing my PhD in sort of 1987, 1988. It wasn't front and centre. You know, you weren't you know, worried about where, where your next dollar was coming from from a research funding perspective and, uh, you know, it was a, a good career to go into. Whereas I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion amongst scientists and amongst, you know, younger scientists and students these days about just how, how tough the, the career is. Um, and, and look, you know, that's, that's just, you know, a, a pretty brutally honest discussion these days, which is, I think, is a really good thing. Um, but but yeah, you didn't you didn't worry about those things. You didn't think about that, and until I guess you were in that working environment, and, and then you could start understanding the challenges. So you really learn about the challenges as as you were experiencing them, 
you weren't sort of sitting back thinking, well, five years from now, if I'm going to be an academic, I'm going to have to worry about that. Whereas I think that happens now. You know, kids are doing PhDs and thinking, well, the grant mm. system looks pretty tough. You know, um, do I really want to be doing that for the rest of my life, or is there are there other areas where I can use my talents? I guess. Yeah, interesting. So in this day and age, like if you were a student going through that that same process, the same mentality of wondering if you can get a sustainable job with grant funding, what advice would you give to those people? I think in the end, most people, I mean, you've got to follow what you love and and most people that end up doing research and biology really, at, at that stage in their career, they really love science. I mean, science and medicine and biology, you know, it, it's fantastic. And once you're involved in research and you're working at that cutting edge and you're publishing papers, it becomes pretty addic- addictive, you know. So I think the first thing you've got to do is just, you know, find the thing you love doing and then find, and if it is science and biology, find that niche area of science and biology because we all, you know, science is split into a million different fields. Find the area that you love the most and that you, you really want to do and, and um, you know, you know, think think about what a career in that space looks like, and and um, you know, give it a shot. You know, uh, I think it, it's tough, but I, I don't know. Um, it is pretty daunting, you know, when you're setting out, knowing that um, unless you're in the top ten ten percent, you're not even going to you'll struggle to get a grant. So it it is it's pretty daunting. But look, you know, there's a lot of daunting careers around. It's not just science, you know. Um, not everybody goes on to become a successful, you know, businessman or a successful pilot or whatever it is you choose to do. So science is competitive like everything else, but if you love science, you know, follow what you like and hopefully you'll be successful. I just wanted to add another question briefly mm-hmm. on this topic. So for a lot like the PhD graduates of, you know, today's age, what other alternatives are there besides postdoc? Because a lot of my colleagues, for example, feel like they're trapped. Not the only kind of position that they can pursue is postdoctoral research. Yeah, look, and there's there are a lot of um, there's still quite a lot of postdoctoral positions around in Australia and, and and globally. And Australian PhD students are really highly rated and and will pick up you know postdoctoral positions in Australia or anywhere outside of Australia. So that's still a relatively um, you know good good path to pursue. Um, but just, you know, thinking beyond that, you know, what are the other options? You, we, we, so within industry, um, in, in Australia, it's pretty challenging. We, we, CSL is by far the biggest employee of, or employer, sorry, of, um, you know, postdocs, PhDs to come in and do wet lab research. Um, Outside of Australia, there's there's a lot more opportunity. So in in the US, both on the east and the west coast, and in Europe and, and the UK, the industry sector and the biotech sector is is like orders of magnitude bigger than here, and 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 a lot more opportunity to go in and work in a small company or work in a large pharma company. So it's a it's really it's a much easier career trajectory in those environments. But look, I would say too, if if you know doing doing a really good postdoc. Um, and then coming uh, back and looking for an industry position in Australia is, is certainly a, an achievable objective. Um, and 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 doing a good postdoc and ending up, you know, spending some time in industry in Europe or the US or in biotech there, 
is another really great pathway back into that type of career in Australia, if you like. When, when we look at, um, you know, we, 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 when we're looking to recruit new scientists into our labs, really it's about the, you know, it, it's great to get people with lots of experience and have done exactly what you want, but we really just start with their quality as a person and their quality as a scientist. And do they look like they're a really good scientist and, and are, they a really, are they a great person that could work as part of a team? And if the answer to that is yes, then all the other stuff's nice to have. Like, yes, they've worked in a company or worked in a biotech, but that's, that's not where we start when we're looking for, for people. When you were going through your sort of academic training, was there anyone that you looked up to or that sort of inspired you to continue going down the path that you were on? Um, yeah, look, you know, we, I mean, um, you know, you have plenty of teachers through high school that inspire you and then you have um, lecturers when you're doing your undergraduate you, that you think, wow, that, that, that person is really smart. You know, they've got a, you know, they, they're a great teacher, you know, I'd really like to, to work for them. It was, it, when I was just up in um, at the Oz Biotech meeting and I was introducing what's called the Nancy Millis oration. And Nancy Millis was a, a professor here at Melbourne University in biotechnology. She was only the fourth woman ever to have a full professorship at Melbourne University. And when she was my lecturer, she was my um, you know lecturer in in biotechnology as an undergraduate, and when I was doing my PhD, she was in the lab next to mine, and she she was amazing, and she you know certainly inspired me, and her her name is still out there and inspires a lot of young people. So you know being exposed to really um, really highly motivated, inspirational teachers and and um, you know scientists researchers is really important. So you know my my. PhD supervisor, you know, was a, was a fantastic guy. But when you get out into the workforce, whether it's, you know, the other scientists in your institute um, or, or the, the people within the company that you're working for, you know, there's lots of people along the way that, that um, do things differently from the way you do them and you think, wow, you know, that actually I really like the way that person does that sort of thing. Maybe maybe I should pick up some of, some of those habits. Um, so I had, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the the uh, the guy I worked for um, at the vet school, Professor Mel Brandon, he was a real maverick and and had, you know, was way ahead of his time in terms of, you know, translation and commercialization. Uh, uh, and he was a fantastic guy to work for, and a lot of, you know, his thinking rub, rubbed off on me. Mm. And then when I, you know, I've had some some really inspirational people I've worked with that subsequently at AMRAD and then at CSL as well, you know. Companies like CSL, in all parts of the company, there's 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 fantastic people that you can you can learn a lot off. That's one of the benefits in big companies is you get to interact with people from all sorts of fields, not just your field, um, and you can see you know how people excel in all sorts of different areas and understand how they do that and you know pick up bits and pieces along the way from them as well. Yeah, I'd say like it's it's good to be able to look up to your supervisors in a way. Yeah, you know, and and kind of drive motivation from that. What makes a good supervisor or a good leader in that sense? Yeah, that's a it's a good question. You know, um, you know, I, I think um, in the end, uh, you know, under for for people that do sorts of research and biology that that we do, um, it's a it's a person that's a, a 
good scientist who's interested in science and understands the scientific process and can, can really teach you about that scientific process, you know, you know te teach you as a student um, about how you do research and how you understand what you're doing in the broader context. Um, because in the end, you, know, you can't be working on something that somebody overseas solved three years ago. You've got to be... You've got to understand where what you fit, where what you're doing fits in more broadly with the global effort in that research. And a good supervisor will, will do that. They'll be able to teach you how to do research. They'll have, you know, their own place in that sort of global community of people that work in that space, and, and they'll be able to help you understand where you fit there and, and guide you to doing research that's new and innovative and novel. And and then they'll help you, you know, at the end when it comes to the hard bit, which is writing up your thesis yeah. at the end but I know I, I've always you know I, I before I um, go you know during my academic career I had about six PhD students um, and it's pretty tough as a supervisor having PhD students I haven't had one since I went into industry but um, uh, you know you've got to be committed and um, stu if students don't have a supervisor that's committed to them it makes it pretty hard for them yeah I'm sort of curious because you were interested in science from a young age a lot of students now that are interested in science, they tend to go down the sort of medical pathway and get a, like a doctor of medicine. Now, you know, I'm a medical student, Oliver's a PhD student. What sort of made you decide to go down the research pathway over a medicine pathway? No offense taken. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> and and um, I did spend some early time in my career regretting the fact that I'd gone down pure science, not down the medicine pathway, because somehow that seemed uh, like it might be more stable and, and might be more productive. But, um, but ultimately, um, you know, the world, the world needs more scientists. The world needs good scientists. And, and if, uh, the, the bio, if the biological scientists happen to have a medical degree as well, well that, that's, that's fantastic. So, I mean, you know, we, we need both. You know, these groups of professional people, certainly we need, we need uh both of them, um, I, I personally, I just found all of the, you know, the, the idea of having to treat patients all the time and, you know, inter interact with sick people, you know, it's not, not something that really appears to me, but the, the idea of, you know, being on the bench doing experiments and, and somehow finding yourself at the cutting edge of human knowledge in your mm. particular field was ultimately a really exciting thing. And, um, and you, you know, and once you get into that space, you know, you realise that this is what this is what you want to do. But um, you know, I think uh, the, the physician scientists um, are, are a hugely valuable asset to um, to to companies and biotech companies that that are, are, are working in, in drug development for a couple of reasons. One, one of course, valuable. Just because they're good scientists and they can contribute all of the ideas that um, you know, or contribute to all of the ideas that you've got going on, um, but also, you know, they, depending on on you know the career path they've taken, they can have that perspective that you don't get having worked on the bench the whole time. So they can bring a, a patient perspective to the research, which can be really important. Um, but with, within a company environment, ultimately. The further along you get in your career, probably the less it matters which which of those particular pathways you came from, because they end up all converging mm -hmm. and um, being equally valuable. 
but but certainly you know i really it's we need to find a way for more people that have chosen the clinical path to then realize that actually i really love research i want to do a phd mm. um and i i i'm going to head down that path now so mm. it needs there needs to be a clear path to be able to do that yeah on the note of kind of you know a lot of people feeling like they want to go into medicine rather than research i feel like a lot of that comes from the parents like the oh. you know parents wanting their children to <laughs> you know pursue a medical career because of you know sustainability financial remuneration other things alike do you think that that's a good thing um well it's just a thing i mean yeah. i think you know i don't know that it's good or bad but we we've all got parents that have that same sort of thinking i mean in like, in the end, from a parent's perspective, but even from, from the, the kid, basically, it's like, you know, I can be a doctor. I know what a doctor does because I go and see the doctor all the time. Mm. Or I can be a scientist. I don't, really, I don't really know what scientists do, you know. I see them on TV every now and then. But, but what is it you do when you're a scientist? How do you be a scientist and how do you be successful as a scientist? It's, it's still a pretty opaque career, for people coming up through um, school and even through university. And I think there's a lot of effort gone that's gone into making that clearer for, for kids moving forward through G, the GTAC Centre over at the University, university High, through a whole lot of other, um, you know, programs that are in place now where a career as a scientist is not sort of this black box thing that it used to be. And so... You know, when they ask that question, yes, I can see what a doctor does. You know, I, I go and see one every six months, but I can also see what a scientist does because, you know, I understand now that's been part of my education, and I can appreciate that this is what my job will look like. You know, and if you're having, tr you can imagine if you're having trouble as a, as an eighteen-year-old or a twenty-year-old, sort of understanding that difference. If if your parents aren't scientists themselves and they're in their forties or fifties or whatever. It's probably even more opaque to them about what scientists do. So. Mm. <laughs> I think uh, on that note, suppose that we had a medical student that was interested in transitioning to science and their parents were non-scientists, 40 to 50-year-olds that were really concerned about the students. So, you know, who, who, whoever the student is. He's definitely projecting. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to the mother of, of uh, this child uh, you know, to, to reassure them that, that sort of science, entrepreneurship and commercialization is a, a viable path? Look, in, in the end, um, you know, uh, as a parent, I think trying to push your children down a career pathway that you think is a good one, um, not what they think is a good one, it's not really going to get you anywhere anyway. Uh, and I think these days my observation would be most kids don't really you know, buy into that. Certainly whenever I tell my kids what they should be doing, they'll go and do exactly what they want to do anyway. Um, but I, but uh, so I, I, I think that's becoming less and less a thing, you know, that, that, that parents are really, you know, have this really, I guess, closed view as to what, what's a successful outcome for their child versus what's a riskier one and, mm -hmm. and a more likely you know, to encourage their kids to pursue the areas that really interest them and find a career in that space. Because, you know, there's there's a whole diverse world of careers out there and, um, you know, it's easy for parents to say, well, I want my kid to be a doctor or a lawyer, but, you know, there's that's, that's probably about 1% of all the things you could possibly do. Hmm. Yeah, 
I don't know how you give them any more comfort though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, Andrew, you you kind of sparked an interest in immunology, you know, when you started your PhD and such. Where do you think the field is at right now? What do you think the future of the field in, is? In, in, immunology. immunology. It's it's um I would say one of the transitions has uh, over the last few years has really seen uh, a translation of basic immunology into clinical outcomes. So uh, you know when I was doing my PhD, um, you know th there was a lot of a lot of unknowns. You know, as an example, when I was doing undergraduate work, nobody had cloned or understood the structure of T cell receptors, mm. for example. Whereas now, like that's probably taught in year twelve or something. Mm. Um, but I think that the really big revolution has been, um, for example, in the immuno-oncology space, and th and that's really has involved taking everything that's been learnt about immunology and the immune response over the last you know, twenty years, and um, turning that into a practical outcome for a cancer patient. Uh, and so, you know, there's still clearly there's still a lot to learn about the you know the basic immune response itself and the fundamentals. But I think the real exciting thing is that the fundamentals have transitioned to such a point that it's now turning into therapies that you know are treating people that would otherwise have no options. And I think that's really exciting. And I think you know it's cancer now. It'll be um, autoimmune disease and other immune inflammatory related diseases moving forward, where all of that you know these decades and decades of basic immunology research are really starting to translate into meaningful. What are you most excited about in terms of the future of immunotherapies more generally? Um, it's it's a, a good question. I mean, I think the, the there is uh, an opportunity in, for example, the oncology space um, to really take what has been achieved so far um, and, and really build on that to have something that is much more effective and can be used in a whole broader range of circumstances. Um, so we're still really in the very formative stages of, you know, CAR T cells, um, you know, uh, antibodies that are targeting negative regulators of the immune response, PD-1 inhibitors, those sorts of things. They haven't been around for that long, you know, mm -hmm. yet somehow they've become really a, an accepted part of the treatment process. Uh, and so I think, you know, when I look at the small companies, um, just yesterday I was meeting a small company uh, up in, in Brisbane, who's right at the forefront of putting CAR receptors into myeloid cells and using other cell populations other than T cells mm. to treat solid tumours. Mm. And, and they've got a really novel approach to do that and it's really exciting to listen to them. So so I think that, um, you know, the, the, that, that we, we need to remember that that whole space is really at the very beginning, you mm. know, and we're sorting out the efficacy so we'll get therapies and we're still sorting out the, the safety as well so some of those treatments come with some pretty serious adverse events um, but when you're an oncology patient you can tolerate those because the options aren't there so I think we'll, we'll end up getting safer outcomes as well so I think you know we'll end up with immunotherapy that's much more effective in oncology but we'll also end up using immunotherapies in a broader range of diseases beyond beyond cancer mm. Well, I'm not sure if uh, this is an area of interest of yours, but what is your uh, 
what are your thoughts on sort of RNA driven therapeutics as opposed to sort of cell based ones? Yeah, well, so it's a big interest of ours. I mean, CSL has a big vaccine business. Um, it's called CSL Securist, probably the number one or two manufacturer of influenza vaccines globally. Um, and those vaccines uh, uh, made what you would, using what you would call traditional vaccine technology. Um, and so we have a really strong interest in, in, in RNA vaccines and RNA technology and, and how that might work in terms of influenza vaccines. So I think, I think um, you know, the, the RNA technology and the vaccine certainly came to the fore during COVID. Those, those vaccines um, still have a, a, a number of limitations, which I think have to be overcome in terms of them becoming much more widespread. And it's, I think it's really yet to be determined whether ultimately you get a better immune response from an RNA vaccine versus a vaccine that's made in a, using traditional technology. So I think I think um, it's certainly a hype, you know a really hyped area. So depending on who you listen to, whether they're academics, whether they're from a company, or whether they're in government, you know the world is going to be cured by RNA technology within the next five years. So <laughs> yeah. it's it's it is way overhyped, um, but it has delivered some great outcomes during the COVID uh, pandemic, um, and I think there's a lot of opportunities that people are pursuing. And CSL isn't there. We have what's we have a, what's called a second generation RNA technology, self amplifying RNA. We're pursuing that in COVID, in influenza, in in other respiratory diseases and non respiratory diseases. Um, and the use of RNA in, in oncology vaccines, I think, is something that's being pursued as well. The the other area I think that gets talked about is in in protein replacement therapy. So CSL has a long history in in protein replacement therapy. I think there's a real. I don't, I don't think RNA, for for the most part, will work well in um, protein replacement, uh, precisely because of the reason it works well in vaccines, where you get relatively short term, high level expression induces an immune response and then it stops. Mm-hmm. You know, with 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 patients with with um, protein deficiencies, I think there's probably going to be better ways to treat those patients. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's very fascinating, actually. Yeah. So I guess I want to transition a little bit into kind of talking about strengths and areas of growth. So in your position that you're in at CSL, if you were to consider yourself to have a superpower, what do you think that might be? Um, look, I think uh, a couple of things. I think um, I, I generally get on with people really well and I think I have a, a, a pretty good ability to 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 figure out um, you know how people fit within what we're trying to achieve at CSL so that group has grown from you know 30 people to almost 400 people over the last 10 or so years and and we've managed to bring in some really fantastic people and we have a, a great team environment so I'd like to think that you know somehow I've contributed um, some of the thinking that's helped develop a really strong team there. Um, uh, I, I'm, I think, you know, I'm, I'm okay at being able to see, take the science and, and that reductionist view and think about it more broadly and, and how it might fit into a medical context mm-hmm. um, and then think more broadly about how our research fits into the bigger CSL environment. You know, that, that can be sometimes challenging. So, so 
being able to take the the small picture and really understand where it fits into that big picture context, um, you know, is something that you need to be able to do. And I, I think I've managed um, to be able to to do that. Um, but they're not really superpowers. They're just the sorts of things you yeah. need when you're trying <laughs> to when you're trying to be su- successful in a in a career. I don't think I look. Um, I don't think I've ever been a really good scientist. You know, I've been an okay scientist, but I think I've had a good ability to pick good scientists and who I want to work with. So I've worked with some great scientists, um, and you know, I just marvel at you know the way they can you know understand things and interpret things and integrate a whole lot of knowledge and and um, being able to, you know, I guess partner with those people and, and bring those people into your organisation, I think is a skill too. And I think, you know, that's that's something that's really helped me as well. Mm. Uh, I suppose on the flip side, mm-hmm. in your professional life more so, what's something that you struggle with? Um, I guess, I guess um, sometimes with, with patience, you know, uh, Developing um, a drug is is really a huge team effort. You know, uh, it, it's it just involves multiple groups with with different talents, and sometimes when you're right at the start of that process, uh, there's so many other groups that you need to rely on to bring their skills to bear on the, the project to make it successful. That is out of your control. Um, and it can be a little easy to get frustrated and, you know, question whether other people are doing their job as well as they should be. So I think I've probably been guilty of, of that over the years. I, I try not to be, and I think I'm probably not as guilty of it now as I used to be. So just just understanding that like everybody is, um, you know, finds what they're doing challenging, but nevertheless, everybody is still motivated and trying to do the right thing. Um, and... They'll do much better if you help them rather than get in their way. Is is probably something that I might have struggled with a little bit earlier, um, but not so not so much these days. I don't think. Um, although other people, of course, might have a different view on that. <laughs> if you ask them. Um, uh, what else? Um, I, I would I would say, I think everybody as as you're progressing through your career struggles with with self doubt. You know, so, you know, um, learning how to deal with, with self-doubt, um, you know, having the, the confidence to put an opinion out there, to, to take risks, you know. I think in drug development, um, there's a lot of risk-taking involved and, and people are always looking for your view on, on um, a particular issue. So, you know, you've got to learn to have the confidence to your view forward and be comfortable taking the risk that you might be wrong um, and that's what leads to the, the self-doubt and so um, you know everyone struggles with that and, and you know I've sort of certainly struggled with it over the years you know, you know what the hell am I doing trying to run research at CSL there must be like lots of other people that could do this better than me and and then you sort of like you know shake yourself get up and, and keep going so I think that's something that you sort of have to but I think everybody probably has to struggle with that. It's, it's a pretty unique person can go through their whole life, you know, absolutely confident that they're the best person for the job every step of the way. Mm. Do you think that you were risk averse when you started out? Um, look, uh, probably, probably. Um, and and you know, I'm at I'm at the sort of, you know, I, I've come to uh, 
be much more comfortable because I'm at the really risky end of the drug development business. So um, all, you know, when we start a research project, you know, statistically there's less than a 5% chance that it'll, it'll ultimately end up as even getting into patients, let alone being a successful medicine. So you sort of learn to become really comfortable with, with failure um, because, and, and that takes a while. So, you know, at the start of your career, you know, every failure seems like a huge setback that you're never going to get over. But at the end, you know, failures are ultimately a mark of success because if you're not in there trying, if you're not in there giving it a go, then you're never going to get that one opportunity to do something really important. So, so yeah, I think you become more comfortable with risk, uh, but that's because you become more comfortable with the thought of failure and, and you know, you realise that's part of the whole process, I would say. It all sounds really stressful, Andrew. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, we, we, Oliver and I have our own ways of sort of managing with stress as sort of startup founders and you know, going through the academic process. Oliver likes to go on six-kilometer runs with his military friend, Moss, uh, <laughs> and I like to go to a Japanese bathhouse once a week and just relax, unwind. What do you do? Do you still surf? Uh, no, <laughs> no, no I, I don't. But it's interesting. Some of, the, um, some of my friends who I used to surf with, Still at my age, are still getting out there and doing doing all the things that put them at risk. <laughs> um, no, I, I do other things. I go fishing. I, I play golf. Um, I'm into watchmaking and watches. Nice. You know, mm. I actually built this watch. Yeah, all right. With okay. a kit though, like I didn't manufacture <laughs> the, the mechanism, but I'm more yeah, into yeah. I did I, put it together. You know, I get old watches and yeah, yeah, get them get them working again. So that's I, I interesting. Do that sort of thing. It's a good hobby. It is, it's, a, it's fascinating. It's a good hobby. I love it. Yeah. So. So yeah, golf, fishing, um, watches, travel, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know. that's really interesting. But you need to find you do you need to find a way to unwind or else yeah. you just, just go mad. And I think that's one of the things you need. You need to have that ability to, to compartmentalize because you know whether it's like I can remember when when CSL was buying the biotech company I was involved with, you know, and you'd spend all day wondering what shareholders were thinking, is the price right, what's everybody's future once CSL takes over, and it's just the stress is unbelievable. And and, and you've got other people's careers hanging on your decision, mm. you're starting your own company. Um, you've got to have a way of turning off from that. You've got to be able to put that in the box and and, and close that box for a while and go and do something you enjoy yeah. um, or else you'll just burn yourself out, I guess. I feel like stress sometimes comes from time management. At least I find that. Yeah. How do you manage your time with all the different things that you're navigating? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So these days it's called work-life balance. Um, <laughs> and uh, we, we do employee surveys twice a year. And one of our questions is asking people, how's your work-life balance? What are some of the responses? Oh, well, so so if we can get like 60 to 70 people saying, percent of our staff saying they're happy with their work-life balance, um, you then know, that's, that's considered that's a, good. That's considered good. Um, but it, so, you know, I always find that work-life balance is if you, it's something you have to manage yourself. If, you, if you're relying on someone else to manage your work-life balance, you're it's doomed doomed to failure, and it, and it can be hard. But particularly in a scientific career, um, where and a startup career where it's all about self-motivation. You know, no, no one else is standing around beating you with a stick, telling you've got to work. It's all. It's all coming from yourself. So you've got to learn to manage your own time in a way that, that you know, that leaves you healthy and able to get up and start the next day. And, I, you know, I'm like 
a lot of other people in, in my mid in my late twenties when I finished my PhD, I was in academia. You know, I was I was writing multiple grants at the same time, and I, I sort of lost the plot for a while and had a few issues. Um, but then over the years, you learn how to deal with that, and and in, in the end, you need to be able to switch off and and go and do the things you love doing, um, and and then come back to work ready ready to go again. But if you know, um, with it, we do we do all of these surveys. It's like, well, are, are you? Um, happy with your work-life balance, uh, and then the answers come back not what you know, not as good as we would like. So what's then? What are we going to do about it at CSL? As if somehow there's a magic answer to getting everybody happy with their work-life balance. So you can certainly do things as a company to help people relax and get that work-life balance. But I think the main thing is encourage encouraging people to learn how to do that themselves and learn how to switch off and relax. How does CSL facilitate that? Um, well, so so uh, one way we we have so we have a really flexible workplace, and and you can have a you know I think science leads itself to quite a flexible workplace because you know you, you know your experiments will have bright natural breaks and you know you not, might not be doing something one day and you can take some time off. But so so beyond beyond that that thing that's inherent with the career, you know I think one of the big things that we've done is we have these meeting free weeks. So it used to be a two, two a year. Now I think it's four a year where for a week no one's allowed to schedule any meetings and, and people awesome. like people that. people can just do what they want for a week, you know, and they don't have to be on Teams. I mean, Teams is something that certainly contributed to the decline in everybody's. <laughs> and so it got us through COVID, but I think post-COVID, if, if someone blew up Teams, then that wouldn't be such a bad thing. But, um, you know... Uh, so we have, we have like four weeks a year where there's like no teams meetings. You, you can sit back and you can do all those. You can catch up on the work you want to catch up on. You've got time for your own thinking. You know, we always encourage our scientists to to be innovating themselves, to be coming up with their own ideas, and their response will be, well, you never give us time to do that because we're always working on these other projects. So we, we, we're always trying to find space for them to have that time and to you know feel that they can innovate and so things like you know the the meeting free weeks and other initiatives like that which free up people's time actually you know has a benefit for the company anyway because it refreshes people you know when you being innovative is challenging so it gives them time to relax and become innovative and contribute yeah one of the things that oliver and i are really interested in is just this sense of successful people having certain morning routines is it a common mantra that, like, in order to be successful, you have to wake up at four thirty a.m. three thirty a.m. Cook, cook your eggs, cold plunge, then cycle to to work, and then just get started straight away. Do you feel like you have a unconventional morning routine, or is it like pretty sort of stock standard? Um, my, I would say my morning routine goes through phases. So my my morning routine phase at the moment is my daughter's a PhD, so she's a postdoc, mm. um, and she works at the University of Melbourne. So we get up and go to work and we go to the same coffee shop every morning and have the same coffee and hot chocolate and cake. Uh, and then after I've had the hot chocolate and the coffee with her, I feel ready for the work. And if, yeah. if I don't do that, then I'm thinking, oh, you know, I really mm. missed that coffee with my daughter this morning. So, my morning's so that, that's the phase I'm in at the moment. Um, but but other times uh, it's not such a, a routine, I guess. And um, with, with global, you know, global companies um, and and. The, the curse of the meeting culture.
structure. Sometimes it's hard to get into a routine because you know there's there's meeting depending on whether it's daylight savings here or in the in in the in the US, for example, you'll have meetings early in the morning, you'll have meetings late at night, and so mm. it makes it a bit harder. Yeah, it should be like a permanent ban on meetings before twelve p.m. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I, and and not after. 5 p.m. and certainly not after 5 p.m. on a Friday. That's, yeah. that's even more important. Absolutely. I suppose I, I just try to cram all my meetings into one day. Really? Because otherwise it just disrupts my workflow massively. As long as they're not spread out across the entire day yeah. and then you've got like 30 minutes to do work and you've got another meeting. That's just a yeah, 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 yeah. Too much, too much task shifting. You just can't get into a deep state of work. Well, I mean, I, th- I, I, don't know. I, I think um, the, the meeting culture is something that companies... I guess any work environment really needs to get right, you know, because otherwise just people find themselves in meetings the whole time and, and when you think about it afterwards, did I really contribute to that meeting? Did that meeting decide anything useful at all? The answer is a lot of the time probably not. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of the things that we try and focus on is like trying to, you know, scale back people's commitment to this, these sorts of things. I feel like a lot of meetings can be five minutes but they end up taking half an hour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You almost can just jump in there and say, okay, action items, everyone, bang, bang, bang. All right, I'll see you all tomorrow. Take care. Yeah, and, and get to work. We've, we've all come across the person that loves the meetings and they just talk forever and you know, all the, the, the other people who just sit there waiting for it to end so they can get out, you know. Yeah. So it's got to be a happy medium. Absolutely. I feel like that's me. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say so. I, I, I urge on the, the idea of having shorter meetings. Ben tends to elaborate a little bit more <laughs> try to motivate the team i think together we make a good balance it ends up being about an hour so <laughs> yeah look ben and i are, are fairly avid readers or listening to audiobooks and such i'm reading the elon musk biography at the moment on the back end of a conversation with ben and a couple of friends what books do you read um so so i guess two, i'm listening to a lot of podcasts at the moment yeah. which we talked about earlier and they tend to be history podcasts and and um the, one, the ones I'm really into at the moment are um, the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan. I've just I, – I, I, I started at the finish, so I did his last one first, which was the Russian Revolution. And having finished that one, I've gone back to his first one, which is the, the, um, the history of Rome, and so I've got a few in between. Mm. And actually at the moment I'm reading um, something that's a little bit connected to it because I'm reading a book um, called Stalin's Wine Cellar. Okay. Um, which, which, is a, which is a fascinating story about these – two Australian guys um, that, that got on to the fact that somewhere in Georgia, in Tbilisi, um, there was a cellar in, in, a, in, in an old vineyard where a whole lot of wine that had been taken from Tsar Nicholas II by the, the communists and subsequently, you know, taken by Stalin for his own personal collection and then stashed away before World War Two stuff. You know, actually, as the Germans were approaching Russia uh, during World War Two, well, we better go and hide all my important wine. So he, he took all this wine and stashed it in this cellar down in 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 Georgia, and it'd been hidden there for like sixty years. And these two Australian guys found out about it, and so in the book where I'm up to in the book, they've just got to the cellar and they've just got their flashlights on going through all of these wines that are like Chateau Yaquem's and all, all of these wow. other famous um, French vintages from like the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s that were all collected by the, the, the last Tsar of Russia. 
So it sort of connects in, connects in with the Russian podcast and the revolution, um, but also with, I guess, my interest in wines as well. Yeah, a poor me glass. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's a great, yeah. that's a great read. So, like, based on these podcasts that you've been listening to, what's something that you've learnt? Well, well, so I've learnt a lot about history. So, so um, I think uh, everybody um, has a, a notion of, you know, the Soviet Union and, and um, what, what it means to be a communist state. But listening to that podcast, it starts with Marx and Engels and the development of, Marxist theory, socialist theory, mm-hmm. and then it talks, it takes you all the way through how that theory was taken up by the revolutionaries in different places and ultimately by the Russian revolutionaries and then their failed revolutions and, and then ultimately their success. And, and, and it talks about all of the main characters that we, that we all know through that process, like Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky. And, and, and um, so that connection between you know, the origins of communism and socialist theory, how the Russians picked it up, how, how they tried to integrate it into their party, and then, then ultimately how it all fell apart. Because instead of becoming about socialist theory and the people was meant to be benefited, it just became about the Communist Party and the way to maintain the party in power. And greed so, and power. Yeah, greed, that's what it came down to, greed, yeah. greed and power. So, so it's a, you, those, I love podcasts where at the end of it, you know a ton more than you knew at the start of it. Absolutely. There's a common saying that history never repeats itself, or repeats itself, but it rhymes. One of the reasons that I think Oliver and I and yourself are sort of drawn to history is so that we have an awareness of what's happened in the past, almost in a way of feeling like we can predict the future or feeling like we can place today in some map of history. There's also this other notion at the moment where um, it seems like a lot is going wrong in the world right now. We've we've almost we, we we sort of thought we were at the end of history. The the U.S. was the world superpower, and then now we have you know wars going on again, and it does sort of feel like we might be I don't know the beginning of something turn, new. Yeah, yeah. yeah and something interesting or different. Who knows? Do you think we're sort of at a, a bad place in history? What sort of your point. do you have hope for no, for the future? Well, it's, I mean, I like, I like the idea that, you know, the, the whole story just cycles over and over with, with different variations. Mm. And, and, you know, if you, you go through history and you look at the rise and fall of empires and the rise and fall of, you know, political parties and powerful individuals, it's all the same. You know, it's all for the same reasons. Um, it's all about power and wealth and, you know, personal ambition. Um, and sometimes it's buried within you know, political parties and, and other times it's not. Um, but it is amazing the way it repeats and repeats. Um, so, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, the, 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 there's no doubt over the last 20 or 30 years the, the, the world has gone through a huge change in terms of the availability of information and um, all our ability to understand at a really micro level what's going on in all other parts of the world, um, whereas that never used to be the case. So all of a sudden everything seems much worse than it was. You know, daily on your, on your, on your news feed you can read about 25 different wars in, in different countries around the world, which seems really bad, but it's probably no worse than it was 50 or 100 or even 1,000 years ago where you just, you know, you just didn't have that information flow. So I think things can seem... You know, worse than they are. I'm always wary of 
you know, people who make the comment, well, it never used to be like this back in my day or it never used to be like this, where it probably used to be exactly the same. You either just didn't know or was in a different yeah. guise. But, yeah, look, I don't know. There are lots of things going on in the moment that causes, you know, lots of concern, whether it's in the Middle East or in Europe, um, the state of politics in the US, um, the state of politics in Australia. It's lots, there's lots of cause for concern. But, but by the same token, I mean... The advances in science and technology, and you know the opportunities that are, that are there for us, are huge. So I think um, you know humans are naturally optimistic as a race. So I think op- there's lots of reason for optimism, and and you've just got to hope the reasons for optimism outweigh those for pessimism in in, in the majority of people. <laughs> and we'll, we'll keep moving forward. Definitely. I want to change things up a little bit, make it a little bit more lighthearted. This is is the good part, all right? So this is the quick fire round. Basically, we're going to just ask you a series of questions that were generated by AI. Oh. And the idea is that you just rapidly respond first kind of inclination to the answer. First thought that comes to your mind. First thought that comes to mind. Don't worry if it's too too, out there, (laughs) outlandish, we can edit it. (laughs) Do you you want to kick it off? If you had to rename the periodic table, what would you call it? Um, the, the, the table of stuff. <laughs> the table of stuff. Great. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Which scientist, past or present, would you invite for dinner? Um, Farmer Burnett. Burnett Institute. Is the father of immunology and one of the greatest Australian scientists. And, and if you have a look at all of the things that he did back in his day and you see that even today they're, they're still relevant and still um, important in terms of medicine and, and development. Great. Uh, what's the weirdest experiment you've ever been part of? Um, we, we were uh, transplanting sheep lymphocytes into small mini pigs to look at <laughs> xenograft to, to, to look at how what, what the immune response to xenograft yeah. and um you know we had the ability in those larger animals to cannulate lymph nodes so you could you know challenge very locally with the, the xenografted tissue and you could look at exactly what was happening in the lymph node and in hindsight it seems a bit weird you know but that, that was wonder that was if it thing. would yeah wonder if it would get past ethics these days well I, yeah i don't suppose know. ethics is certainly uh at a much higher level than it was when I was doing my PhD, that's for sure. <laughs> Do you have any guilty pleasures after a tough day in the lab? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, a, a double Negroni would probably be my main guilty pleasure. Do you know any funny scientific jokes? No. <laughs> I probably do, but I can't remember them. At no worries. The spur of the moment. What's your uh, favourite element and why? Hmm... I think it's questions for like a chemistry professor. Yeah. <laughs> My, let, let's just say um, iron because it's so important to mm. life and, mm. and, you know, blood and, and the structure of hemoglobin and, and without iron, you know, you'd be in a lot of trouble, but nevertheless it can still cause lots of pathology and disease as well. So iron, yeah. I'll go with iron. There you go. Uh, if you weren't a scientist, what would you have become? Um, a professional golfer. But I think I would have been relatively limited by talent. Yeah, so, so I wouldn't have progressed too far. What's, uh, what, what lab equipment represents your personality the best? Lab equipment. 
Maybe um, a balance, trying to get the, the weight of everything right and trying to you know, make sure you've not got too much or too little of what it is to get the right outcome. Maybe one more? Mm, I'm not sure. I'll ask one anyway. Is cereal soup? Deep philosophical yes, question. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. He's gone with yes. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. We'll, we'll wrap up, wrap up now. Um, or at yeah. least that that section. We we might. Are you just, some more questions? Yeah. No. I just oh, thought true. I thought we'd move on to the the final part of like the segment, which is kind of peeling back time. Uh, you know, traditional orange style. The orange. Orange. <laughs> so we we had a previous guest, Professor Edward Harvey. True who left quite a fascinating question for you to reflect on and give an answer to. So the question actually is... This one here. Is it this one? Yep. Yeah. Is it justifiable to step away from a high-paying career that doesn't bring personal fulfillment, even at the cost of losing societal prestige and financial security that supports your family? Um, I'd say not only is it justifiable, Inevitable um, these days, and uh, and, and so pe- yes, pe- people should be doing it. The only caveat would be um, you just got to think about when you pull the plug or pull the pin. Basically, uh, you, you don't want to come home one day decide you know you can't stand this career anymore and go in the next day and resign. You know if you if you've got you know commitments and, and other issues, you might face a challenge there. But if you think about it, then then yeah. To spend the rest of their life doing something they hate. That's, that's one of the good things about being a scientist, right? You can spend the rest of your life doing the things you love. That's true. Hopefully, you can, if, assuming you stay engaged and enjoy it, continue to enjoy it. And what's a question that you'd like to leave for our next guest? Whoever that might be. Um, well, uh, so, um, you know, I think rational decision making and database decisions. Are really important at every level of society, um, yet yet somehow at some of the most important levels, that's not what's happening anymore. So so, what what can we as a society do, and as individuals to do to to try and bring back um, you know really data logic driven decision making for those things that really impact us? Is there anything obvious that we can do because we seem to be heading in the wrong direction? Hmm. That's a very philosophical question. I think. Agreed. Perhaps we'll just ask one last question before we wrap it up. Uh, when the final chapter of your life's book is written, what do you hope the closing line will convey? That that uh, he I made made a, an important contribution to the success of science and our technology sector here in Australia. That you know that the. the the biotech sector uh, and the translation of science from our institutes is better for the contribution I made while I was working. Brilliant. Fascinating. Well, this has been the Orange Podcast. We'd like to thank Melbourne Connect Coworking for sponsoring this episode and thank you, Andrew, for coming on. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Now, we talk a lot about business and entrepreneurship. 
But to build the future, you need people and a place to build from. Discover the perfect workspace for collaboration and productivity. Melbourne Connects Coworking is offering our viewers an exclusive 25% discount on 12-month memberships. Quote Orange when you submit your inquiry. Links are available in the description now.